It's my pleasure to introduce Sarah Varney. Sarah Varney covers health for KQED's statewide news program, The California Report, and reports regularly for National Public Radio's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. She has reported extensively on health policy, health disparities, public health, and environmental health. Please give a warm welcome to Sarah Varney. Thank you. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce all of our panelists. Larry Edelman is co-director and head of production for California Newsreel, the country's oldest nonprofit documentary production and distribution center. He's the creator and executive producer of Unnatural Causes is Inequality Making Us Sick, which explored the root causes of class and racial inequities in health. The film won a DuPont Columbia Award and the 2009 Film Radio Television Award from the National Academy of Sciences and Institute of Medicine. He's developing a new documentary film, which we're going to hear a little bit about, I think, and digital media initiative for California Newsreel called American Birthright, which aims to reframe the way Americans think about early child health and development. And... Tony Eiten, Dr. Eiten, is a senior vice president of healthy communities at the California Endowment. And prior to being here, he, was, uh, he served as director of the Alameda County Public Health Department. And in that role, he oversaw the creation of an innovative public health practice designed to eliminate health disparities by tackling the root causes of poor health. He's practiced both as a physician and, as I learned tonight, as an attorney. He's a complete overachiever and has been published in numerous public health and medical publications and delivered lectures on public health across the nation. Thanks for joining us. And Ryan Snyder is president of Ryan Snyder Associates. It's a transportation planning firm that prepares plans for bicycles, pedestrians, trails, safe routes to school, transit, and smart growth. He has prepared bicycle or pedestrian plans for over 100 cities, and he's a Federal Highways Administration pedestrian safety instructor and a certified National Safe Routes to School instructor and a National Sustainable Advisor Program instructor. He also teaches a class on pedestrian and bicycle planning to graduate students in the UCLA Urban Planning Department and is former vice president of the Los Angeles Board of Transportation Commissioners. Thanks all for joining us. Right. I thought we'd start with Larry. So Larry's film is really sort of the definitive film that's been made about this phenomenon. It's the only film. And the only <laughs> film, but really the definitive film. And, um, and in it, Larry, I, w- I wonder if for the audience you could describe for us this very interesting, the Whitehall study, which I think really blew a lot of people's minds because when we think about health disparities, we tend to think that they only affect people who are very poor or marginalized. Well, the Whitehall studies blew my mind. Um, Whitehall... Is, stands for Whitehall Street, which is where the British secret, there's a Freudian slip to begin, I was gonna say British Secret Service is, where is the British Civil Service is sort of located there. Um, perhaps there's been some infiltration. Uh, and what they did is they, there were two large studies that took, actually the first one began in the late 60s, but then the second one in the 80s and is continuing today, where they tracked basically the, the lives and health outcomes of first, uh, I think, 10,000 and 18,000 British civil servants. And the reason they did this, of course, is because the British civil you know, service is a bit structured, as one might think. It's, these are the guys with the briefcases walking down the street, right? That we, you know, they're, they're the stereotype we have of the British um, secret service, yes, civil service. And when this was, began, this study, um, I think most of us, at least in the popular press and you know, popular thinking was that the people who are dropping dead of heart attacks are those high-stressed executives, right? That's sort of, that's the stereotype. And what Whitehall showed that not only was that not the case, that the executives were living far and away longer than anybody. In fact, the folks at the bottom of the ladder were three times more likely to die than the folks at the top. Sooner, everybody uh, sooner. dies. More li- thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you for the, even, even me? Uh, the, but what they then fa- also found, though, is that there was a graded relationship, depending where you were on this hierarchy, that even those second from the top were, like more, were twice as likely to die sooner, have a greater mortality rate, than those at the top. So basically, as you go up, the, the ladder, or the pyramid, the longer life, the better health you have. And they began this with heart, looking at heart disease, but they looked at almost every disease, and they found that that gradient is everywhere. 
And they found that not just for men for occupation, but it's now been studied for wealth, bar income, uh, education, you find this health wealth gradient in every country in the world. So it's not just that the rich on average, on, we're talking averages, remember, there's always an exception to the rule, but the rich on average will live longer, six, more than six years in the United States longer than the poor. And what was the but, theory about but, what was driving that? You know, well, but I'm just going to say yeah. first, but even middle class white folks like me can expect on average to die two years, two, between two and three years sooner than the affluent. So, the, so this is about all of us. It's not just about the poor. And that was what was so, you know, I think, you know, the big light bulb and what was so, such a breakthrough about the Whitehall studies that were done in the UK. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what were some of the ideas in terms of what was driving that. And one thing that really struck me was this idea of how much control you have over your life, whether or not you can take a break to use the restroom or have a snack. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, one of the issues is power. You know, power over or power under. If you think about a CEO, there's a lot of pressure in the CEO's life. But the CEO gives orders, doesn't take orders. The CEO has lots of folks to give him or her advice, to ask for help, a lot of support. The CEO gets lots of strokes, has dinner with the rich and powerful. Um, and when all this is over, gets to take their sailboat to Aruba or wherever, <laughs> you know? And, you know, and... And as you go down that ladder, what happens is the ability, the, the arena we have, I think, to exercise control over our lives, be it at our job, or be it just worrying from, you know, going from paycheck to paycheck, worrying about whether or not one's house, you're going to make your mortgage payment, whether or not you're going to have enough food in the refrigerator, or at the job, how much control you have over your job, all of that takes a toll on your organs. And we now, it's interesting, beginning to understand how. Tony can talk about this as a doctor much better than I can, but the point is, is we don't believe in magic, right? There's got to be a way in which the outside, our social and economic environment, can get into the inside. We know how toxics do it, you know, how pollutants do it, but how can our social and economic environments be actually toxic? Well, they can. They can actually basically do among a number of ways in which it can happen, but one of which is triggers the, which you're getting at is the stress response. That old fight or flight response that we all learned about when we were, you know, in biology class in high school. You know, when the tiger jumps out from behind the rock, you go, oh my God, you know, and your heart starts to pump, your blood pressure goes up, blood sugar flows through your, through your you know, through your bloodstream. Also, you can fight or flight, fight or flee. Mm -hmm. Then the tiger goes away and you go back to normal. But what happens if you're constantly on alert, if you're constantly in a world that's uncertain, if you don't know whether or not your plant is going to shut down or be there tomorrow, if your 401k might disappear, if you're worried about your kid and whether he or she is safe at night, what happens is that these sort of drip, 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 that this cortisol and epinephrine flooding through the system apparently wears, takes, wears down your organs. In fact, Arlene Geronimus a, an epidemiologist at the University of Michigan refers to this as weathering. Mm. It's a metaphor that makes perfect sense. It's weathering. So what happens is that folks are not are basically what's killing us today are chronic diseases, heart disease, you know, uh, diabetes, ki kidney disease, stroke. But what's happening is folks are getting the lower down you are on the pyramid, you get them when you're 40, 50, or 60 rather than 60, 70, or 80 in essence. And then that's a class thing. But then there's the extra burden of race, or more precisely, racism. So the extra you know, burden that one has to, has to confront, because speaking of being alert, of just not knowing if you're in a restaurant if you're not served. I, for example, as a white person, figure the waiter's incompetent. But I know that all, you know, all of my African-American friends, if we have a bad service, part of them is saying, is it me? Let's stop there for a second and go to Dr. Aiden. So Dr. Aiden was the head of public health in Alameda County, which of, of course is Oakland. And when you were, I covered you when you were, and then you abandoned us for the <laughs> endowment. But you did a lot of really interesting work at the, at the department where you were really interested in looking at how this phenomenon manifested in Alameda County. Describe for us what you found with your study in terms of life expectancies for people who lived in Oakland, in the flat parts of Oakland, which are generally the very poor and in some cases quite dangerous parts of Oakland, with people who lived up in the hills who tend to be white and, and, and much wealthier. Yeah, it, it always sort of struck me. Um, I grew up in Canada, so I you know, had this sort of worldview until I was 22 and then 
came to the U.S. and and I was in East Baltimore, um, which is a place I couldn't describe. I couldn't understand. It was for me. It was a war zone. I, I literally said when I was being toured around it, I said, "When was there a war here?" Because there were like burnt out buildings and cars up on blocks and mangy dogs running about and and children playing in and amongst this. And I thought, "What is this?" And and I remember the guy who was driving me around. He turned around, you know, in the, in the seat of the car, and he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said. What do you expect? It's the inner city. And I was like, what's an inner city? <laughs> and I should expect this? I mean, this is, this is an expectation of this society? So when I got to Alameda County, I mean, it was a long time later, um, you can drive through Alameda County just like you can drive through Los Angeles, just like you can drive through lots of other places of the United States, and you see this sort of these environments that change radically uh, from block to block. And, and we weren't really thinking about the impact of that on people's health. And so we decided we were going to try to study this and try to document life expectancy differences from census tract to census tract. So we did that. For every census tract in Alameda County, and there are about 150 of them, we calculated a life expectancy. And we found uh, essentially a gradient. Uh, and a dramatic gradient of about 25 years from the lowest to the highest, which is kind of like the difference between the life expectancy of Burma and the life expectancy of Japan. I mean, you know, radically different social economic conditions that produce those kinds of uh, life expectancies. And we found that a a child growing up in West Oakland, an African-American child, can expect to live 15 years less long than a white child growing up in the Oakland Hills, and literally a distance of you know two to three miles, 15 years. And so when you see that, you're immediately forced to try to explain it. And the explanations that we have, that we work with, that are sort of in our common understanding, are completely inadequate to explain both the scale of that difference and the phenomenon itself. And so you're forced to sort of re-examine your understanding of how health is produced in society. And you can't explain it by people not going to the doctor or people just behaving badly. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense when it's geographically distributed in a predictable manner. And the, the fact is that it hasn't changed in 30 years in Alameda County. Whereas healthcare has, health behaviors have, information has. So there's something much more profound that's structuring people's opportunity and health that we don't understand, that we are only skimming the surface of, and that it's incumbent upon us to try to figure out so that we can actually intervene in that. And we'll come back and we'll sort of pull that apart and, and start to connect some of these things. But I, I want to go to Ryan now because there are component, although there is something obviously grandly profound going on there. At the same time, there are all these components that are kind of adding up to create this phenomenon that Tony and Larry are describing. And you've worked a lot on just trying to change the physical environment in which people live and work and play um, to try and at least address some of the contributors to, 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 this, to these health disparities. So maybe describe a little bit about particularly the, the, street, the, the street work that you've been doing. Um, or that you're, you're, you've been planning for um, to try and get people to just move differently in their daily life. Okay, much of my work involves um, creating streets where people can walk and bicycle and take transit and, and get about uh, on modes other than driving alone conveniently and safely. Um, one of the things that the public health world has become very concerned with is the skyrocketing rates of obesity which they have closely tied in with the built environment. And we can look at great disparities between neighborhoods and uh, rates of obesity. For example, in Los Angeles County, um, Manhattan Beach has the lowest rates of childhood obesity, about 4%. But Maywood has about 37% as the highest. Hmm. There's a clear correlation between um, the affluence of the neighborhood and the proclivities to become obese. And a lot of it is the street and the walkability of the neighborhood and the sort of the friendliness of, you know, just get out and have what people in public health call active transportation. There are other components as well. 
access to park space is dramatically different in higher income neighborhoods vis-a-vis -vis lower income neighborhoods. Uh, people in lower income neighborhoods uh, live closer to freeways, or I should say the freeway adjacent neighborhoods are almost always lower income and they've got much higher rates of health problems due to the air pollution coming off the freeways. Um, much less access to um, healthy food in lower income neighborhoods. And this is a, a function of so many fast food restaurants being there and sort of a lack of outlets for, for healthier food. So th these are a lot of the, the planning and built environment issues that, that we've been concerned with. But, um, and we're, we're trying to create more walkable neighborhoods. We're trying to provide better access to parks. We're trying to sort of address some of these issues, but there are many challenges. And it strikes me that I, I remember reporting a story a couple of years ago and learning about how, I don't know, Tony, you can correct me on this, 100 years ago, say 100 plus years ago, where public health people used to be much more involved in planning. You know, you'd have a... a, a, a a tannery, you know, and uh, and you'd have all sorts of grotesque chemicals coming out of the tannery, making kids in the neighborhood sick. And so you had this idea. Public health people came in and said, in fact, we need to remove the industry, put it over there, and then isolate that from where people lived. And and it seems like in in the intervening years, public health has really been pushed out of that planning process. And in a sense, here we are now. Um, many years later, and we've kind of got this environment that was never, as you say, sort of conceived of from a perspective of how would that affect health. Right, and, and, and I think, you know, part of it wasn't public health being pushed out. Public health left. I mean, public health was interested in the biomedical model mm. and, and sort of, you know, antibiotics were discovered and everything became about germs and, you know, essentially chemical warfare against germs. And, and, and medicine has just continued along that path. And public health is now just only saying, hey, you know what, we need to go back to where we came from, which was really about planning and prevention, and has started to look at these issues again um, you know, in concert with uh, planning to try to better understand uh, essentially what historically was the infectious disease consequences of poor planning. Now we're looking at the chronic disease consequences of poor planning. And, and so we're, we're just at the beginning of this. Um, but it's, it's clearly critical given the obesity epidemic and the fact that we spend uh, $2 trillion on healthcare, two thirds of that, three quarters of that, excuse me, three quarters of that are on chronic disease. And now I'm, I'm not trying to shill for the endowment because I know we're here and they also contribute money towards my station. But, but you are doing this very, there's been this realization among funders in California that in fact, we can't tinker around the edges anymore. We actually have to go into some of these communities where the health disparities are, are great and literally physically cha cha or change the physical environment. And you've picked uh, 14? 14. 14 communities around California. I'm sorry if many of you know about this, but where the endowment is actually going in and putting a, a chunk of change to essentially retool the environment in which kids are growing up and people are going to work in school. So and there are many of those communities, but maybe pick one. Um, I was talking to Daniels and Golly about this last week in Sacramento. Maybe just give us a sense of one of those communities of what are some of the kind of components that you're going in and trying to change. Okay. Well, I, we Merced, or, or I'm not sure which of the which which one are you name one, and I'll I'll describe it. I mean, they're 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 all very similar and all very different in in many ways. They all have profound um, inequities, structural inequities. So you have populations that are sort of literally physically separated from opportunity. Uh, you know, the schools don't work. They're on the wrong side of the freeway. There's no transportation. There's no health care. Um, there, there may even be local environmental issues like arsenic in the water or, um, you know, um, point sources of noxious pollution. Uh, some of the farm and agricultural industry generates a lot of dust and some noxious toxins. So y you name it. That I, What's similar about them is that we've started to recognize that health is really opportunity. It's not health care exclusively. It's about opportunity. It's the, the ability to essentially get an education, the ability to get a job, the ability to essentially access the levers of opportunity in our society. And so our strategy has become one less of trying to get remedial health care to people as trying to essentially potentiate the engagement of low-income uh, populations 
in decision-making structures in their environments. Um, so who decides how these communities are laid out? Who decides where the medical waste incinerator gets sited, or who gets the parks, or whether they're going to be sidewalks? Well, it's not some mysterious entity. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, these are people that look like us. But we tend to make decisions in ways that favor power. Why? Because it's the path of least resistance. So we're trying to create in our places paths of more resistance. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot harder for decisions to be made kind of willy-nilly around these noxious land uses that impact um, disproportionately um, low-income populations. That's part of the solution is actually to change the power balance in our communities. And it's not just poor people. This is the whole spectrum uh, in this country is disengaged from the public square. And you know, here we are, Zocalo. And, and that lack of engagement in the public square has health consequences, predictable health consequences that we can measure. Well, and, and to kind of just give a very specific example of that, um, I understand that in some of the schools, I think it's in Merced, there was this idea, you know, California has uh, done an okay job at trying to ban sodas, particularly in elementary schools. But in, I think in one of these schools, they found that half or 75% of the drinking fountains just didn't work in the schools. So they had banned the soda, but they didn't have, give the kids any water to drink, and so kids were sneaking soda in. So they, the endowment, I think, paid to fix the water fountains. Um, so that's just something, a, a concrete example of that doesn't just affect the poor kids going to that school, it affects all the kids going to that school. Um, but Larry, I want to talk to some, t turn to you about this, this phenomenon that you described in your film that, that health is not just access to medical care. And here we are now post-health reform and well into implementation. We're all talking about you know, Medicaid expansion and the ex health exchange coming online in a few years and getting people access to see a doctor. And somehow that's going to solve many of these problems for us. So maybe from your work that you did with your film, just kind of describe for us what are some of the other contributors to a person's health and ultimately their longevity. Yeah, well, you know, it's, we do equate health with health care. I can't tell you that actually the number of reviews, positive ones of our show, where the headline talked about new film on health care. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing about health care in this four-hour series, you see. You know, the studies show that differential access and treatment of, in health care is really only responsible for 10 to 20 percent of our health inequities in this country. That's it. Now, it's, like, I, I, let me qualify that statement that said that personally. I think it's absolutely shameful that we're the only country, the only rich country in the world, in fact, many poor countries, that doesn't guarantee health care, not health insurance, but health care for everybody. But having said that, even where you have health care, you still have that health wealth gradient. So, the other thing is our talk about prevention. When we talk about prevention, we talk about people making right choices, right? There's that framework, oh, some people are healthy because they eat right, they exercise, uh, they don't smoke, um, and others just don't have the discipline to eat right, you know, they, they, or they're ignorant, or they're just, you know, just don't have what it takes. They're making wrong choices. Still Puritan, you know, you know blame the you know, and it's blame great. The yeah, here we are. <laughs> and it's amazing. And the, and it, but there's some truth to that. I mean, people do make bad choices. Sure. Let's remember. But it's only a partial truth. Because number one, the choices we have are constrained, by, the choices we make, rather, are constrained by the choices we have. As, as hard, where you get, even drinking water. You know, you cannot, get good drinking water in a good part of the Central Valley, I mean, it's toxic, right? Some of that place, places are actually poison. Um, where are you going to get your five to seven fruits and vegetables? Here in LA, the, the uh, Community Health Councils of Los Angeles showed, did a series of studies that they showed that here in LA, I believe that parks, for example, green space, they compared in South LA to West LA. West LA has about 78 acres of green space, I think, for every, I'm not sure what the, the, the measure was. Every, every I think it's, a, I think it's a, either a thousand, I, I, I think it's a thousand. Yeah, I think it's every 10,000 people. Is it 10,000? Anyway, about 70, the, here, 78 acres. In South LA, 1.8 acres. In other words, less than two. You can do that for grocery stores, the supermarkets. They did it for actually schools. The ratio of dilapidated school structures is eight to one. 
We're talking about the same city here, not to speak of the same country. You know, so there are a lot of things that we do um, that, you know, is about, again, that constrains our choices. But then there's lots of things I think we have to realize that even that, uh, whether we, our access to health threats or health pr promoters have absolutely nothing to do with choice whatsoever. As you say, if you live downstream, downwind from a toxic dump, that's not about your choice. If you can't, don't have a place in your neighborhood to get those five to seven fruits and vegetables, that's not about choice. If you have to you know, commute or work two jobs, or if you work for a job that doesn't pay a living wage, or you are, where your plant is gonna shut down and run off overseas, or you have no benefits, so you have no sick leave. So that, for example, if your kid's sick, you are faced with either the choice of, of sending your kid to school sick or missing a day's wage. 49% of Americans, by the way, have no paid sick leave for, in the private sector. The public sector has it. We want to take that away, it looks like now. Um, but there is one thing where we are actually doing very well. We actually smoke less than any other rich country. This tobacco is an interesting example. It's been successful. The rates of smoking here are lower than the rich, other rich countries. Yet still, so the Japanese smoke more, but they live five or six years longer than we do. You know, the, all the other countries smoke more. A lot of them drink more. They eat more fat. And yet we're still dying earlier. So it's about a lot more than just our individual behaviors. And ultimately, I think it has to do with what Tony said. It's about the ability to exercise control over our life. And it's hard to understand. That doesn't translate directly into, what does that mean about health? Mm. But I'm saying the science, we try to go into it, is there. And that the way in which, you know, if you're engaged and you have some power over your life, you actually have a way to have some hopefulness as opposed to that futurelessness mm -hmm. that Tony saw in East Baltimore, which translates actually into those bad chemicals that are going coursing through your blood system and are going to weather those organs. And, and to, to bring it, uh, one, one practical thing that, that planners or, or counties have tried to do, and Tony, you can talk about this in terms of Alameda County, and then Ryan, maybe some of the other counties that you've worked in, is you know, counties are required to have these planning documents that essentially say, how is the land in our county going to be used? And uh, they're called... The general plans. General plans, and there are certain elements in the plan. And so there's been this attempt to try and include a health element in these plans which is apparently a radical concept. Um, so did, did, now, did you guys do that in Alameda County? Did you add an actual health plan, health uh, element? In, in some of our unincorporated areas, yes, but the cities are responsible for their general plans, and they're not always all that eager because, uh, quite frankly, and I, I think you can speak to this probably quite well, um, the planning process is an extremely contentious, yeah. um, you know, land use decision-making processes in general in cities are very contentious. And many of the city political leadership, uh, many of their patrons are developers. And so they don't want you messing around with the process by which their developments get approved. They don't want you adding yet another set of checks. So um, it's, it's a, and, and I'm sure you have probably some war stories about that. Um, it's, a, it's a contentious issue, but it's, an, it's, it's a critical issue. But I want to make a distinction here. It's not so much what you build, it's the process by which you build it. And, and so I've had the experience of, of having very pretty plans um, introduced into a community as, here's what we want to do and have that community attack us. Not because they don't like the plan, it's because it was a fait accompli. Mm. This is essentially what we have done for you. And the process of actually engaging people to participate and, and uh, share their vision for how they want their community to look and to be, uh, yields, it can yield exactly the same plan, but a completely different level of buy-in and a sense of hopefulness amongst the people that are you know living in that community. Yeah. And I, and I and I know I don't know that they're necessarily doing that part of this part of that in Riverside County, but I know uh, a couple of years ago there was this attempt to actually cross train public health people into the planning department so that when the planning department was meeting to approve a, a new development they would say 
you don't have any uh, sidewalks in your new development. Um, and the, 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 the woman who had done this, she was the only person, at this point, this was a couple years ago, she was the only one that was doing it, so God help her. But she would show up with one of those little pedometers, you know, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had walked over here, and <laughs> she felt like she had to be sort of all things to, had to represent the whole public health community. But talk a little bit about that kind of work that, that you're doing in terms of trying to bring the public health public health goals into uh, the planning department. Yeah, well, in, in many respects, um, the public health w- arena is leading the planning arena on some of these issues. And in fact, I've done a lot of work with Riverside County. Riverside County was one of the counties uh, where they really stepped out in front of this, this whole issue of uh, health and obesity and, and active lifestyles. And I've done some of the training in uh, Riverside County, my client being the public health department, um, to planners and, and transportation engineers and so forth in, in the county. But um, that same phenomenon is happening in, in Los Angeles County where they've got uh, several different grant programs where they're paying for planning efforts for cities to become more walkable and more bikeable and, and to have health elements. The LA County uh, helped to finance the production of a health element in the general plan for the city of El Monte. Um, so they're becoming very interested, and they're pushing planning to a large degree. And it's, it, it's uh, been a real blessing to me because I've been involved in this whole advocate world and planning world um, for about 30 years trying to get more bikeable communities and walkable communities. And for many years we were arguing on environmental grounds where the public health folks came in in the late 90s and gave us a huge shot in the arm and their arguments have resonated better with people than some of the environmental arguments uh, we were using. But the, in, the uh, um, intersection between public health and planning is growing dramatically. And I can tell you that, for example, the UCLA um, Urban Planning Department is partnering with the public health school starting next year to offer a joint degree. And there's a lot of interest among students in both the public health department and in the planning department in getting joint degrees because these issues are coming together so much. And I, I, some, quite a few of the students in my planning classes that I taught, um, I, I gave a lecture last week in one of the public health uh, um, classes and then some of my planning students were in there. So there's a lot of crossover right now. But I just I find it interesting that the public health folks are kind of leading mm. the charge on on these really planning issues. And it seems it seems somewhat obvious how you might want to conceive of a, a, of a new town from the ground up if you're dealing with you know farmland that you're going to do a development whether you get people involved or or you go through this process that you're going through. But I wonder and maybe Dr. Wright and you can speak to this in terms of. Many of these areas are already built up. I mean, you think about West Oakland, for instance. There are freeways. There are certain structures that are not going to move. Um, how do we do we think about moving people wholesale away from these, in some ways, toxic environments? Or is have you seen it successfully done either here in the United States or in other countries where they've actually gone in and thoughtfully retooled those environments? Yeah, I think that, uh, first of all, it's not realistic to move everybody out of any place. Sure. Um, and, and, and I'll point out, because people do suggest that sometimes, you know, why don't these people just move? And you realize that when, when you actually disrupt a community like that, you're di- disrupting more than just, you know, houses. You've got churches, you've got schools, you've got family relationships, you've got, you know, histories. So, you know, you're really ripping people out from their roots. Mm. Um, and that's not good for your health. But um, West Oakland is sort of an interesting example because there's been a lot of you know, gentrification in West Oakland. And um, some of it has been, if there's such a thing as good gentrification, some of it has been good and some of it has been not so good. Um, and they actually did move a freeway uh, in, in West Oakland after this, uh, the Cypress Freeway mm. was moved after the, uh, the earthquake in 89. Like earthquake moved in. The earthquake. Well, the earthquake <laughs> collapsed it, but then they were trying to rebuild it in the same spot. And the community said no, because it, it cut right through the West Oakland community, and they actually just moved it, which was, has been great for that, for that community. But I, I, redevelopment um, is an issue as well as sort of new development um, and infill development, which is when you already are built out and you are now thinking about, well, how do you sort of, how do you manage sort of change in a place that's already built out with streets and buildings and whatnot? And virtually, all of the communities that we're working in are, particularly those that have you know urban centers near them, 
are in redevelopment areas. So they actually have, uh, unless Jerry Brown gets you know, his way, <laughs> they actually have some independent resources mm -hmm. to um, help fund and fuel uh, development in those areas. And so their participation is, is really critical. I mean, it sounds sort of like let's all hold hands and sing, but it's, it's absolutely night and day difference uh, when you have robust community participatory um, processes because that gives people a sense of the future, a sense of control, a sense of you know the ability to manage their own destiny in some way. And I'm talking about a collective sense. I'm not talking per se about an individual sense, but they're related. And I think that that is kind of the difference for me as sort of somebody who had his sensibilities forged in a place like Canada. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, you know, yay Canada, or may maybe I am, but... Um, <laughs> it's okay. But, but what I'm saying is that this sort of sense of, you know, community is just so much more natural and pervasive in a place like Canada. Here we're so hyper-individualized, and everything's about what you do, and it's not about what we do. Yet, when we have an opportunity to actually enlist the participation of people in, in sort of collective decision-making, we see dramatic results. And w what the message is, I think, from, you know, from a natural causes and from a lot of the other work, is that that has real measurable health benefits. Uh, unlike anything that you can do with a, you know, a, a bag of pills and a stethoscope. And Larry, having, having done this film, and now I know you're looking ahead towards, and you're doing some work now on early childhood, um, is it your sense that some of these communities, even if you do involve them in the planning process, can be sort of fixed in any one person's lifetime? Or are these environments that are going to take a very, very, very long time to change? This is the old socialism in one country argument. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, you know, the, it's, a, it's a really interesting question because communities by definition are bounded, right? We talk about this geographically. Yet the forces that act on communities aren't. You know, the forces that act in communities are in the state level, the national level, the global level. You know, where the corporation, you know, a company will rip up itself and move somewhere else. As, you know, the company, in, in the last episode of Unnatural Causes, we talked about Electrolux, which is the largest appliance manufacturer, or was a manufacturer in the United States, ripping out and throwing 3,000 people out of work in Greenville, Michigan. Electrolux just shut down this, in the last three months its last two plants in the United States and moved them to Juarez, Mexico, where they pay people 250 a day. And those, those plants were in, in Iowa. Um, but I think, so, I think what can happen on a community level, though, what is critical, is what Tony is talking about, is that the beginning of building some sort of capacity, the building of organizing, the beginning of a movement, the sense that perhaps there can be something different. Because where does it start? It's not, change is not gonna come from the top down. We've seen that. We had a wonderful opportunity for that to happen with this recession, right? With the banker's robbery. But it hasn't. It's gotta come from people demanding from the, from the ground up, I think. Well, it's gotta be both. But without communities being organized to defend and fight for what they need and put forward a vision of what a better, healthier world might look like, then that, that's where I think this community organizing, it's community organizing work that uh, Tony is financing. I, you know, I don't know if you want, really is yes. what it comes down to, isn't it? Um, and that's, that's critical, because then communities can begin, because what is politics? These are political issues, and politics is really fighting over the, the distribution of resources, of scarce resources in many cases. These are ultimately political issues. You know, I, there's an interesting the, story, though, here in L.A., just in South L.A., trying to get new supermarkets. Um, and this has been going on now for 50, 15, well, a lot, more than 15 years. And, you know, South L.A. has a councilwoman who has sworn to bring new supermarkets to South L.A., and that hasn't happened. I mean, I think there is... Not, not yet. Not yet. We're working on it. Um, you know, there's a food max, and you can go buy 15-pound bags of sugar, but you can't... In there are farmer's markets here and there. And I think one of the things, as a, as a health reporter who covers these issues, is you, it's, it's hard not to look at it somewhat cynically and say, you know... Oh, it's another farmer's market. That's just kind of throwing, uh, you know, a little bone here and there. And even the people who supposedly represent these communities are not necessarily fighting as hard as they can to, to make good on their promises. Yeah, you know, the, the legacy issues 
that you know we're confronting in many of these communities are profound. You know, we, we actually did this up in Oakland. We did we looked at red uh, redlining maps of Oakland, and we looked at the census, and we looked at where African American populations lived. And you see African American populations just sort of populating these red areas where mm-hmm. they're, they're devoid of resources, devoid of investment from the 1940s. And so when when people say, you know. And this has been said to me, you know, you talked about disparities last year. Why are you still talking about it? <laughs> Can't you just snap your fingers and it's, it's make like, it go away? We, we do have kind of a, a short attention span in this country on these profound issues. But we do see discernible progress, even in our work, which has really been you know, ongoing in our Building Healthy Communities work for now only about 18 months. We've seen some real tangible victories in places that, you know, you wouldn't expect to see the kinds of victories like we're seeing in this space of time. And we think that that has nothing to do, per se, with us. It has more to do with the idea that people are actually believing in the idea that they can actually challenge some of the decision-making structures uh, in their places. And they're seeing those successes and saying, wait a second, this kind of works. So, I mean, if we had more time, we could talk about in South LA what's, what's, what's being built uh, we can talk about stuff that's going on in, in Merced. We can talk about stuff that's going on in the Coachella Valley. Um, stuff that just you know can only happen when people feel that it's possible working together to sort of participate in decision making and, and to steer those decisions towards a broader segment of the community. Well, I guess I'll stop us there because I know we want to have time for questions and maybe some people will have questions about some of the specific projects that, that, that you're noting. So. Hi, my name is Yesenia Aras. I'm a public health nurse for LA County Department of Public Health. And we've used this video, on Natural Causes. I mean, it is the best thing since sliced bread. And I talk oh, about I it. <laughs> I mention it. I talk about it whenever I get an opportunity because it really changed my mind from the minute that I saw it. I went home and I said, something's wrong here. We're not doing this. And I work in South LA. So, and I work with the Bel- um, Building Healthy Communities. And even there, we've, we've tried to use the unnatural causes and have them to, to look at things. And, and it's a struggle to get them to see things. I mean, we're working and we're making changes, but that video, the, the, the film is wonderful. We showed it to kids and we thought, you know what, I don't know if they're really going to understand this. We showed Place Matters. They got it and they were mad and they wanted to do something <laughs> about it. And it was fascinating to see that. We've, we continue to use it as, as a tool. And I just wanted to let you know that it's, it's wonderful. Everyone should watch it. <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't, didn't pay, pay me. <laughs> when you're talking about community involvement in development plans, did you detect any differences between communities where home ownership and ownership owner-occupied properties were significantly higher than rental properties so that perhaps the people who lived in the rental properties were not quite so invested because ostensibly they were going to be moving on at some point? Yeah, absolutely. In all of our communities, there are high levels of of renters. We don't have, you know, with a a couple of exceptions, we don't have very high home ownership rates, which is sort of a feature of sort of the American landscape when you come to low-income communities that are facing structural inequity. Um, But yes, there are other barriers as well. People have to worry about, you know, immigration status, and they have to worry about um, you know, the fact that they are working two or three jobs that, you know, don't allow them to essentially function unless they're, they're working these kinds of jobs. So, yeah, but uh, despite that, we found that when we, and, and, and I haven't talked about it, but a core piece of our work is to fund organizers, community organizers, to literally go door to door and to start addressing people's real life, real immediate issues, and to bring them into a larger conversation about some of the root causes uh, that they um, can start to see that might be explaining some of the stressors that they're having to contend with on a day-to-day basis. And that organizing really changes people's sense of the potential. Um, so you don't have to be an entitled homeowner you know, to participate in a, a general plan Um, you know, conversation with the city council or with the planning commission when you feel that you have the support of your neighbors and your residents and that the issues that are are affecting you on a day-to-day basis, like, you know, cars speeding down your street, no sidewalks, your kids aren't safe walking to school. When you see that those issues can be addressed through this particular venue, 
it changes your relationship uh, with that community. If, if I could add to that, um, I give planning workshops on a regular basis. And my experience in lower income communities, particularly immigrant communities, is that when we're there talking about walkability within their neighborhood and giving them the idea that there's actually something that could be done to improve their neighborhood, we get big crowds of people out. They're enthusiastic. They're happy to be there. They're excited that we ask them their opinion. This whole idea of being able to participate in the community and have something to say about their decisions is exciting. They want change. They want improvement. And I'll contrast that with some of the other neighborhoods that I've worked in, which are more upscale and, and wider and so forth, uh, where a lot of the people are just kind of cranky and they don't want change. Um, so I, you know, n not across the board, but that's been part of my experience. Is some of those neighborhoods are, are ready, willing, and able, and they want to do things. Hi, my name is Tim Wright. I'm a registered nurse, and I work. I'm the parish nurse at Our Lady Queen Evangelist Roman Catholic Church down the street here. I work mostly with uninsured, low-income people who come to see me because they're sick. Um, my question really is uh, about, and I'm not sure who I'm directing it to, but about what kind of arguments uh, about changing the built environment as a health argument are effective with people, because I see people all the time coming in and saying things to me like, uh, well, I'm obese, but I'm in good health anyway, or uh, which they might be. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make any negative comment, but I'm worried about their health. Or, or my blood sugar is 300, but that's good for me. Um, or my blood pressure is 190 over 100, and that's about average for me. I'm, I'm fine. I, don't feel, I have no symptoms. I feel fine. And to say, well, you know, we could change the environment so that maybe some of these um, factors that I'm seeing as, as putting you already in poor health and like it had for much worse health, um, I don't really know that I can see how I'm able to argue in my daily work in such a way that I'm able to make people see the connection between their health and the environment. Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure who I'm directing it to, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. In my clinical practice, I've certainly had the same experience. And, um, you know, one of the things that has always frustrated me is that in the clinical setting, you're kind of, the, the range of tools that you're, you, know, you have to work with are, are so narrow. It's sort of like, well, you know, here's a pill, you know, or, you know, here's a brochure, or, you know, go to this class. And I think that one of the things that, um, the, in, in the clinical world, that's starting to uh, develop is an understanding that we need to broaden our sort of our array of of solutions that we offer to people. And, and one of the most important solutions, and this has become particularly important in the obesity epidemic, is the ability to participate with others who are similarly situated in reassessing their environment, and and so that you know some of what you're hearing is denial and and people feeling like they don't want to take, you know, 100% personal responsibility for their situation. And if you can bring them into a setting where they're with others who are similarly situated and offer them, you know, sort of the, the power that they as a peer can actually help others and that working together, they can actually look at their environment and start looking at opportunities within the environment to actually make them more walkable or bikeable and for them and their children, it's funny that then they start taking their own personal health seriously in a different way. It, I've just seen it over and over again. If I say, you know, here's a brochure, you know, here's a pill, here's a whatever, you know, that's not a solution that allows them to have any power. They're passive. They've got to take this thing that they don't understand. They've got to take it X number of times a day, and they've they got to come back and get more from me, and they've got to pay for it. But if you can actually enlist their expertise to help others and to look at what they know, which is their community and you know, the ability to sort of get around and actually show them that there are venues to actually influence those things, it changes their sense of, of, of control. And, 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 and that translates into a different relationship with their own personal health. And, and adding to that, I, I've had a number of physicians express the same experience that in a clinical setting it's difficult. But I, I can say that in the sort of the community settings that I work in, We'll present slides on what walkable communities look like and what communities look like that are not walkable in neighborhoods and show the Center for Disease Control obesity trend slides. You can Google that. You can download them. 
shows how obesity has just skyrocketed in this country in the last 25, 30 years. Um, and once you've shown those slides, people are like, oh my God, uh, we got to do something. And yeah, we really like these ideas about... And, 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 and the walkable neighborhoods are, are not just for, for getting people healthier. They make for much nicer places to be. There are just so many other benefits besides health to having walkable neighborhoods that people grasp onto that vision pretty readily. My question is, I guess none of you mentioned the portion sizes here in U.S., and I grew up in Europe, and I just continue to be amazed at how much people eat here. I mean, even coffee, you know, like in Europe, you get a cup, and Starbucks, the smallest one is, I mean, just amazing. Um, so I wonder if all these studies and relationships you mentioned, if you just corrected for this one factor, just if all those people just ate less. I wonder if that would maybe resolve like 80% of the problem. I have no idea what to say about that. I, I'm as equally amazed as you are. Right. I mean, but you know, other than, you know, you know, this, we're all about more, right? More is better. That's, that's the way it works. Uh, you know, I mean, on the other hand, you remember you, somehow this does slide into the whole diet question. And we all know how difficult it is for anybody to diet. But in terms of the um, portion sizes that are served in restaurants, I mean, I, I, well, I, I, I don't know I, what I, I sit on a committee for the Institute of Medicine that's looking at uh, efforts to accelerate progress in obesity prevention, uh, you know, in our lifetimes. And the, uh, you know, this issue of portion sizes, food marketing, um, and access to healthy foods is, is sort of the, the one, one of the key elements of, of the strategy to try to change the, the rate of growth in the obesity uh, epidemic. But I, I think that the, um, what you learn when you study our food industry in this country is that it's really not about food. It, it's about, it's an industrial process that generates a lot of products, largely from corn and some other things, and, and there's a massive surplus of that product. So essentially, the industry pushes that product out in, in many different forms, and it manifests itself in these massive portions. These, you, know, you go to uh, TGI Fridays or whatever, and it's all of these massive things. There's too much product um, out there of this kind of product, and it's cheap. So it's, it's essentially the, it's the, it's the, it's an industrial process. It's not really about food. One of the things that amazed us when we, when we looked at, when we make all these recommendations about healthy foods, fruits and vegetables, and we looked at the U.S. population and the production and the supply of fruits and vegetables in this country, we would have to almost double it just to meet the recommendations of the, you know, the, the various nutrition bodies. So, you know, we have to undo this sort of relationship we have with food as sort of like an industrial product and start thinking about it again in ways that, you know, touch on things like sustainability, locally grown, you know, locally harvest, seasonal uh, food sources. It's, it's not as simple as just sort of like make the portion sizes smaller because, believe me, people like me have tried those silver bullet solutions and, and they don't work. But, you know, maybe one of the things we can do is actually redefine what we call, call risky behaviors. We talk about overeating as a risky behavior, but what about those lobbyists for that corn industry, which is getting subsidies for corn, which is making us sick? You know, same thing for you know, bankers making predatory loans. Why don't we call those risky behaviors? Can we expand that definition? Of, you know, or the, you know, the mortgage broke, you know, the, the, the um, bond sale trades, traders who packaged these securitized derivatives and made them not only possible, but profitable. Why aren't those risky behaviors? So I think there's a ways that we can actually use that and so use some of the language to perhaps expand this debate and bring, push the onus of, of perhaps the, the our sort of locus of attention, not just on the, the consumer of the food, but as, you know, as Tony is saying, on the producers. And we, there's all sorts of ways that we need to do that. And, and there's another point yeah. as well. I, I won't speak directly to your question because I'm just a planner. That's a little bit out of my field. But the, the point that you're making is that you put something in front of somebody and they're going to eat it. And, and, and actually, there have been studies shown 
that when you put candy in front of somebody at the office instead of a, 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 an apple, they're going to eat the candy. When you put in neighborhoods fast foods instead of healthy foods, people are going to eat the fast food. And when you create neighborhoods that are not walkable, people don't walk as much. When you create neighborhoods where they're not parks, people don't recreate as much. So the whole issue of what we put in front of people and what we put in their community is very germane, if I could extrapolate your point beyond probably what you were asking about. But it's interesting, just to add this, I was just in France for two weeks. NPR is doing a whole series this year on moms and babies around the world. And I got lucky enough to do the France uh, story. And I was looking at their maternal and child health program there. And one of the things I did was go into some of the schools and look at their school lunch program. And it's very, I mean, you know, it's Paris, it's three million kids. And these are, in some cases, very poor areas. And they have all of their fruits and vegetables are all seasonal. So they don't expect to get strawberries in January. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they, right now they're eating asparagus. Mm -hmm. And uh, they teach the kids about what are the kinds of fruits and vegetables that are in season. And uh, the, the, the kids know that. And they have all these little, manu you know, these little brochures. And they take them home. And they talk to the parents about it. It's, um, so it's true that there are these sort of large, much larger structures at play mm -hmm. um, that need retooling. Everything from food policy to education reform to you know, there's a, a British medical sociologist with the wonderful Dickensian name of Graham Scambler. <laughs> who, and he has posited what he calls the greedy bastard's hypothesis of health. I kept hearing tonight the importance of having local community involved in the process of rebuilding the system. But uh, I am kind of skeptical, or, or at least I don't know, how you actually do it in a practical way given the fact that, at least in this country, there is very little, I mean, based on my experience, little involvement of the, of the public uh, in, uh, in the polit political process. And so how can you get them involved? And what would be significant? Have 10% of your community, 50% of your community involved in creating new systems? I'll, I'll tell just a quick story, and then I'll, I'll try to answer the question. In, 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 we, we brought in, this is when I was in the public health department, we brought in, we, we had a policy seminar, and we brought in some policymakers and asked them, you know, what moves you? What makes you change your mind? And they, they told us a, a, a dirty little secret. And they said, it, it's like two phone calls. You know, it's, it's like, because on most things, nobody calls. You just never hear from anybody. If you hear two or three phone calls, that means that, you know, that's different. Something, you know, is afoot, and we have to pay attention to it. And we're like, huh, well, that's nice to know. So um, we've kind of used that a little bit in our, in our work in our 14 communities and, and reminded people that it doesn't take a lot, you know two, three phone calls, you know, people showing up in a meeting, requesting meetings, that changes sort of like, it changes the accountability dynamic. Somebody's of, watching. Of the public official. Yeah. And that's really what we want. We want a different relationship between sort of decision makers and, and people that are, are living the impacts of those decisions. And, and so tipping that relationship doesn't take a lot. Now, sustaining it over time and, and actually in a, in a time of you know massive budget cutbacks and you know uh, an assault against government um, you know cynicism in the in the public space about the ability of government to get anything done those are a set of forces that you have to factor into that too so if you want to really tip you not only have to get you know the attention but you actually have to provide solutions solutions that are, are workable practical solutions that can be done without having to, you know, rob the, you know, the mint to be able to afford uh, what's going on. Often the, the people who participate in the, in the narrative and the discussion are those who don't like something and they come out to complain about it. I mean, Sarah was talking about earlier some of the difficulties of, you know, getting a new supermarket in a neighborhood, for example. The fact that we're sort of unable to, to do things. We're unable to think big anymore. When you, you look at surveys back in the 1960s, and something like three-quarters of everybody believed that government was a positive force that could actually improve their lives. And you look at the surveys today, and we're in the 20s somewhere. We, we, we've lost the concept of collective behavior to get things done. And I think it starts a lot of with Ronald Reagan and his whole anti-government mantra. And we've also we've become... 
We've become a nation of individuals that are all competing with one another instead of a society that works together to get things done. And so that's one of the challenges, is, is, is kind of bringing back that sense of collective behavior that we can actually deal with and improve our communities and solve some of these problems. But um, uh, how do you do and, that? And to that point, yeah. just before we get to the next question, I mean, what we haven't talked about yet is the private sector. We, we talk about the government being, you know, not, not being responsive enough in order to get supermarkets to South L.A., but a big part of it are private supermarket companies don't want to go there, they say, because they don't think they can sell enough food at a high enough margin. They complain that they, um, people shoplift from their, from their stores, and so then they have to pay some guy you know, nine bucks an hour to stand outside to be a security guard, and somehow that then eats away at their profit margin <laughs> when the supermarket developers are some of the richest people in this country. Um, so I guess the other question is, how do you get the private, private industry to come to those meetings as well? Well, some of that is just bad data. I mean, the, the, the data that uh, supermarket developers use to try to decide whether they have a market in a place is actually bad data. Yeah. It's flawed. They don't you know, understand the purchasing power um, in many of these communities. So we're working actually with some organizations that are actually getting good data uh, to illustrate the, the market. And um, the, the second thing is that su the supermarket business is a very low margin business. You know, it's like a 2% kind of business. So they do have um, some legitimate claim that you know, they can't afford to take the kind of risk in certain communities where you have these other fixed costs. So part of what we're doing is we're actually trying to buy down their, their costs uh, by creating a fresh fruit financing fund. Uh, and this has been done in, in Pennsylvania uh, very effectively. And the stories, the business stories that come out of Pennsylvania uh, disprove this myth that you can't make money in low-income communities. It, it literally is this like group think, mm. you know, it's sort of like, oh, we can't make money there, we can't make money there. Well, in fact, people are making a ton of money there, actually delivering a, a, a healthy product. They just are using better data and better information, and they're and they're actually involving the community in the design of the service. And they're also hiring locally. Too. They're hiring locally. They're training people locally, and they're actually surveying the communities to find out what it is they actually want to buy. Uh, which is something that a lot of the supermarket chains don't want to do. They assume that everybody wants to eat what you know people in the Midwest eat. So, you know, the the, the, the yeah, well, the, the data is what not is, is, is not good data. Well, I don't know. I'm Canadian, so don't ask me. <laughs> Schnitzel, maybe. Or something. Hi, my name's Elle. I'm also a registered nurse. We seem to be very well represented tonight, which is <laughs> exciting. Um, thank you so much for everything that you've said so far. I guess my question to wrap it up um, essentially is, aside from making a last-minute career change, what can I do as someone who lives maybe in West LA and benefits from some of the resources that I have um, as a person that can practically work to make a change in the city that I live in? Uh, can I relate a, a story I recently heard? Uh, one of the things you might be interested in hearing about is the Blue Zone movement, which is where they studied communities where people have really long lives. And the, the people who are behind this are now starting, they're trying to start up new blue zones. And one of the persons in the South Bay, which is one of the, the second actually new blue zone that they're starting in the country, um, one of the persons working on that is an ex-physician. She went through some of the experiences that this other registered nurse told us about in her work trying to get people to uh, listen to them about taking better care of themselves, and she tried every technique imaginable, and she finally concluded, and I don't want to discourage you from your field, because that's a really important field, but she finally concluded that she needed to get more involved in this, some of the community and political d discussion about the built environment, and to try to you know, address some of these issues on a larger scale. So you can get involved in some of the local planning issues when they, they come up, and, and that's a really important thing. And, have community support for some of these concepts. Can I, I'd like to move the lens back to a macro lens using this for a moment and make two observations. You know, there was a 30-year increase in life expectancy in the United States in the 20th century, from 47 years on average to 77 years. Why was that? You know, well, most, you know, and, and let me preface this by saying, you know, tuberculosis, which was, you know, a scourge of, this, of, of urban areas in particular, fell 76% between 1900 and 1944. 
So this is giving away my answer. Um, so when do you think anti the antibiotic for t TB was invented? It was invented, it wasn't invented until 1944. In fact, it was invented in 19, and used in 1948. So you had this fall of TB rates before there was any medicine for it. Now they were doing other things, of course. But most medical historians would agree that this 30-year increase in life expectancy is a, was a consequence of social changes, of the end of child labor, the eight-hour day, the Wagner Act and collective bargaining, social security, Medicare, the Civil Rights Act, um, health and sanitation codes, particularly with tuberculosis. These social changes um, you know, enabled that, you know, those tremendous productivity increases that technology enabled during the 20th century to be more widely shared to help both, you know, both give us a greater material, better material life, as well as, of course, to sort of hope that things could be better, particularly during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, the second observation is, is that between 1964 and 1980, study show, we start with the Whitehall study, maybe we'll end with another one. Yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm, believe me, I'm not an academic. I barely made it through high school. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, between 1964 and 1980, health gaps, both class and racial, narrowed. Starting in the 1980s, they began to widen again. What happened? Well, in the 1960, pardon? Ivan Bosky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we had the Medicare, we had the Civil Rights Act, we had the war on poverty, and they made a difference. Um, and then in the 1980s, we began to reverse those things. We had tax cuts for the rich, we have cuts in social services, and of course, most of all, a set of deregulate this deregulation fervor which has you know, resulted in a laissez-faire economy, which brings us back, to, which we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, which has wrecked havoc on people's lives, which is chaos, the chaos. You know, and chaos is not good for our immune systems, as we were talking about before. So, I mean, wherever we live, you know, and we, we've been focusing a lot about place, and I think that's terribly important, but I think we really, that ultimately, the changes that, we, that are gonna make a big difference is, are the changes that are gonna make a difference in everybody's life for everything. You know, if we can have a more equitable life, a better, where, where our wealth is spread more equally, because as you mentioned, someone mentioned earlier with Richard Wilkinson had been here, you know, that more equal societies tend to be actually healthier societies. And if we can look at the ways in which, as, as Tony has been doing, how do we put health in all policies? In other words, using a health equity lens to measure transportation policy or housing policy or even fiscal and tax policy, not only will we develop, I suspect, a healthier community, healthier population, but we will also make tremendous progress in those other arenas. It's sort of a win-win kind of way. I think health is a great lens with which we can sort of evaluate to what extent our, our society is really serving, serving all of us. What is the measure of success? Well, and with it, that, perhaps we should know, go talk. raise our glasses with a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I just want to offer a quick answer to you, uh, because I get asked this question all the time, and I've had many answers over the years, uh, but the one that I've sort of gravitated to now is get involved in your school district and work on the education uh, and the achievement gap. Um, we all have them in all of our school districts. Uh, you can roll up your sleeves and get involved there, particularly as a nurse, you're a very credible spokesperson for the implications of, of that achievement gap on health and all of life's chances something very practical, it's right there, and they need you. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and thanks to Ryan and Tony and Larry. Thank you very much.